Okay, now first questions on Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31, and then we can go from there to other questions unrelated. Yes, Caleb? It's more of a comment, but just uh, how ironic it is that Laban has to chase after his gods. (laughs) His gods get stolen from him, and he exerts all this effort and energy to go rescue them. Yes. I mean, I I think of like Isaiah 46 and other other chapters in Isaiah where God's mocking idolatry, how they have to build it, set it up, and they can't, you know, they, they can't do anything. They're dumb, like as you said. Yes. Yes. Like, yeah. Just, uh, it's just funny that he has to exert all this energy to rescue his own gods. Right. Actually, um, you, you mentioned Isaiah 46. Uh, let's read it to confirm that how ironic and how ridiculous, actually, it is uh, for someone to chase after his own idols. To chase after his own idols. Just think about that statement. 46.5. Isaiah 46.5-7. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. On on, on the the same verse, is it also possible maybe those idols were of value? And that's why uh, Rachel had taken them, being that maybe they were also thinking because Laban has nothing left, that maybe that's their inheritance, and so they took Yes, yes. Some have also thought that the idols, the household idols, were of value, maybe gold-plated or gold, and therefore that's why she stole them. Then if that's the case, if that was her intention, then she would be a thief in, in a sense. But isn't that, isn't that, I guess you would say entitlement, isn't that their inheritance? In, in a sense, it would be inheritance, but... If they were his gods that she stole from him without the labor, like Jacob's labor is how he acquired all his wealth. Labor for Laban, that's how he acquired his wealth. But in this case, it would actually be theft if Rachel stole it from her father. But that the idols had value, monetary value made of gold and silver, that's also very possible. Is there any later consequences in uh, in Genesis there of, of, of her having those idols? Is there any repercussions or anything the Bible mentions? There are no repercussions for Rachel doing this that the Bible mentions. That's the question. Yes. Uh, however, remember by this point and later, Jacob will be expanding his, uh, not only his family with another son, Benjamin, but it's likely that he acquired more slaves and a greater household and then eventually grandchildren, right? So when he does so, look at Genesis 35. Genesis 35, verse 1. Genesis 35, verse 1. 
Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. And let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the rings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. There they did in his household. It doesn't say who in the household. Maybe Rachel. But if Rachel's a believer, then we have to say she took them for some other reason. Not to worship them, but for some other reason. But if it's not Rachel and it's others in the household, it could well be that among his slaves, that he, slaves and servants that he had, some who were idolatrous. But he had not insisted that they get rid of their idolatry until this point. But no repercussions or punishments to Rachel for doing this. We don't read of that. Next question on this chapter. Yes. Uh, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus says in verse 43, You heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right? And also, that's a passage where uh, you heard it was said, Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I say, Do not resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Um, so a lot of people would say that in the Old Testament there was one way, vengeance, vendettas, revenge, doing these types of things. And then in the New Testament there's a different standard of righteousness. But could you comment on the passage that we just read, Genesis 31, and then how these verses are actually fulfilled in the actions of Jacob um, and, yeah. and what, the way he's behaving toward Laban. Yeah. And then also that... It doesn't mean we can't, that we have to be passive or that we can't point out evils that are committed against us and even seek to rectify those types of things. Okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. Matthew 5, 38 to 42. What is the relationship of this passage to Genesis 31, Jacob's experiences? Because people say, since Christ says, uh, turn the other cheek and let people steal from you, right? <laughs> Things like that. Um, when he says that, that Jesus has a new and a better ethic in the New Testament that did not exist in the Old Testament. So the New Testament ethic is better than the Old Testament ethic as though God's moral standards change. When actually that's not the case. We just saw from Genesis 31 that Jacob is basically experiencing what Jesus is saying true believers should experience. When people abuse you and mistreat you, do what you can, you bear up with it, you persevere, and eventually God will t take care of you and protect you. Right. And that's what Jacob did. But other examples, Jacob is one example, but let's look at this. In Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter... 23, 
verses 4 and 5. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. Moses, Moses the prophet, wrote the book of Exodus, right? Under the law of Moses, therefore, this is said. What do you think of, or what is the common mistake that people make when they think law of Moses? Oh, no. We're talking about laws, things you're supposed to do, right? They say, oh, no, we have to obey. And it's really mean and cruel in the period of the law of Moses. God was very much a mean God, an angry God during the law of Moses. Well, look at this in the law of Moses, Exodus 23, 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain it from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. If you have an enemy uh, here, the first one is your enemy, and then the second one is your hater. And basically he's saying the same thing. An, An enemy is someone who hates you. If someone hates you, he's your enemy. So if you encounter a man like this who has done you wrong and who actually despises you, it doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want against him. Because if his animal is wandering away or if his his animal is helpless, carrying a load and is getting very tired for, for whatever reason, the master of the donkey did not release the load, and you see the animal of your enemy struggling under the load, help the animal. And when you help the animal, you're showing love and patience, endurance towards your hater or your enemy. And this is an example of how the ethic is the same. The way we treat our enemies is the same in both Testaments. Um, Then... It doesn't mean, another part to your question, it does not mean that we can and never should seek for justice. It doesn't mean that. Jacob said, God rendered judgment for me last night, right? In 3142, he rendered judgment for me last night. We should wait for the patience of God and for, I'm sorry, the judgment of God, the righteousness of God to take place according to the situation. Whatever mistreatment Jacob experienced did not deserve Laban being assassinated, ambushed, right? Right. It didn't deserve that. It was wrong, but it didn't deserve that, and Jacob didn't do that to retaliate. He just bore with it until God intervened for him. And that's what Jesus meant in Matthew 5. But Jesus did not mean we we cannot ever seek for justice. He did expect us to act justly and to seek justice. Justice in whatever the circumstance. In family, in in society, in government, wherever it is. And the prime example, an easy example, if you wanted to do a Bible study on this, Acts chapters 21 to 28, the Apostle Paul is slandered, he's accused, he's arrested, he's beaten, he's imprisoned, He's in house arrest. He is taken from Jerusalem to Rome. And they all almost die. He and others almost die at sea. Everything like this is happening to him. 
And why? Because he's pursuing justice. He could have easily fled. He could have easily fled. He could have done any number of things. But whenever anybody falsely accused him, he stood up for himself and said, no, that's, that's wrong. This is who I am. This is what I've been teaching. This is what I've been doing. And you cannot accuse me falsely. He stood up for himself constantly. Acts chapters 21 to 28. In that way, we should seek justice. Whatever the scenario is, however we can. Next question? Yes. Actually, Jacob showed his kindness to Laban by leaving because he didn't want to confront him to have a problem. Yes. At the very end, it said that Jacob's anger was kindled because he didn't find the idols that he was looking for. And then he said, why didn't you hotly pursue me for this stupid thing? I mean, he could have really, you know, got, got upset. And I come sometimes think that Rachel took the idols to be mad at her father for not helping them for doing anything, giving them any, you know, diary or anything like that. I mean, uh, Jacob served seven years and found out he got the wrong, wrong woman and he had to serve another seven years. Because he was wicked and doing the things that he did. Yes. I think Jacob showed his kindness by leaving without telling the mom because he didn't want to have the confrontation because he knew he would not let him go. Yes. He would, he would find some reason to keep him there just like he had time and time before. Yes. Not, he led uh, or fled in secret to avoid the confrontation because he knew Laban would be against him. But then even Jacob was trying to avoid the response, the reciprocal response, because if you have two men who are in, in the heat of anger, there could be violence. There could be lots of danger going on. So he was trying to avoid that. That's a good point. Yes. So that's showing his patience and his wisdom too. Um, preventing himself from being in a compromise compromising situation that could blow up. Yes. I have a, a little addition to this. Uh, Jacob, there's been many people that talk about um, his, how his name is rendered as a deceiver, one who grabs the hill, and, and just uh, how he's been with his older twin Esau and the, the birthright. All that. So, with that context in mind, with this, uh, and even with this study Bible I have, uh, with this commentator, is portraying Jacob as the deceiver in, in this in, in this context. So, for us, what we know from Scripture, not only in this specific context of chapter thirty-one, where Jacob is essentially pleading for everybody, what is my transgression? What is my sin? As well as you go to uh, Romans 9, and it says, For Jacob I love, and Esau I hated. And so it shows Jacob's righteousness throughout. What would you s s talk about commentators that have pretty much, I would say, have retroactively tried to assassinate Jacob's character through events in his life, such as this? Yes. Uh, having two wives, and mm -hmm. talking about he was not a faithful husband in that way, or yes. the, his deceiving of Esau. Okay. Um, the way he left 
you, you said that you're using a study Bible and the commentator portrays Jacob here as a deceiver. It's John MacArthur. John MacArthur? Yeah. John MacArthur study Bible, okay? In, in that study Bible, he's saying that. So the question is, what do we say about people or commentators who do that, who portray these patriarchs and Christians of the Old Testament this way? Um, well, first, let's confirm that Jacob did not sin because he does say in verse 36, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? And Laban doesn't have anything really to say about that, right? So Jacob challenged him. Laban had no evidence to bring forth. Then if we assume correctly that Jacob was trying to avoid a conflict that he knew could become very severe, then that is noble. That's wisdom to avoid it. To confirm that that is wisdom to avoid it, Proverbs 17, 14. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. Abandon the quarrel before it breaks out. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. Uh, Imagine a tap that you open. Let's say it hasn't been open in a while or you don't know how fast the water comes out and you just turn the knob and then it gushes out. You go, oh no, and then it splashes everywhere, right? That's what he's saying the way quarrels are. Quarrels can be like that. Proverbs 20 Verse 3, 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool will quarrel. This shows that he was acting rightly. Jacob was acting rightly. Also, do we have the divine approval of this? Yes, Remember, in verse 3, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Verse 3, 31, Genesis 31, 3. Then in verse 12, he says that you have had success with your flocks, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar. Um, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. Now, I know explicitly it doesn't say leave secretly, but if he had sinned and done it the wrong way, why are we not told about it explicitly? Presumably, God told him to do it this way, to leave secretly to avoid a severe conflict. Then we have it confirmed in verse 36, Jacob challenges Laban, what is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Jacob considers himself guiltless. Laban cannot prove him guilty, nor does the text of Scripture say he's guilty of doing wrong. Okay, so our interpretation, which we heard, I think is the correct interpretation 
part of your question was, how should we look at these commentators? Well, it is the trend, the general trend of modern commentators to look at the people in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, male or female, to look at them in low light, in in dim light. They don't look at them as examples for us, as models for us. They assume that, and then it perverts their interpretation of the passages. And they do it wrongly in, in uh, in the first point. But how can we refute that first point? Just think about one example, Abraham. When we read about Abraham later in the Old Testament, is he disparaged? Are his sins highlighted? Are they talked about all the time? No. How about in the New Testament? Is he disparaged in the New Testament? No. In fact, in Romans chapter 4, 4, 18, Romans 4, 18 to 22, the Apostle Paul covers several chapters of the book of Genesis in these verses, and this would span a significant time in the life of Abraham in the land of Canaan, a a specific or significant period of time. 4.18, Romans 4.18. In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And then the, the example for us. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. If Abraham is stripped away of being a godly example, and right here the apostle described his life in at least the span of 25 years, from the age of 75 to the age of 100. If you see the things he's referring to in this passage, they coincide with at least Genesis 15 to 21. At least Genesis 15 to 21, which would encompass at least 25 years. But that is the section where all of the attackers and critics of Abraham see all kinds of sin in Abraham. But Paul didn't see sin. He said, hope against hope, without becoming weak in faith, Verse 20, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. 21, being fully assured. And then 22, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It's not true or it's not valid for us to criticize Abraham. And if we can't criticize Abraham, the other patriarchs and matriarchs of the Old Testament, we can't do that either. So, Their stance from the very beginning is an unbiblical stance. If the Bible commends Abraham, why are we always criticizing Abraham? Now, 
Why would they do that? There is an ethical or moral reason I think they do it. They do it so that it can justify the disarray, the disobedience that we see happening today. If Abraham is not a good model, and if we can denigrate Abraham and denigrate Peter, denigrate Paul, denigrate everybody in the Bible, then we can keep low standards. We can keep low standards so pastors don't have to preach against sin. They don't have to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They don't have to do that. They can let the people live as they please. And after all, Abraham wasn't perfect, right? David wasn't perfect after all. Paul wasn't perfect after all. Paul got upset and he was easily irritated, right? Look at the book of Galatians. So, you know, they point to things like this to demean the saints of the scriptures in order to justify their own sinful actions. But shouldn't we always point them to Jesus Christ who never had any of those sins? Always point them to the one that is our standard, not comparing ourselves uh, among ourselves? Yes. Well, yeah, that also is a a way to refute them. That, okay, you're distracted with this Abraham did this and that. Well, let's look to Christ. Um, Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, Christ said, Matthew 5, 48. Okay, yeah, look to Christ. And then what do they do? They agree with you and say, but that was the the Sermon on the Mount, and that does not apply until the Millennial Kingdom. Okay, or they will say, yeah, Christ said, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And a part of perfection is you have to admit white guilt. (laughs) Really, they do that. They do that. They, they do things like that. They say, yeah, that scripture is true. Jesus said that. But they misapply it. They misapply it. They also, I mean, use it as, uh, but Christ is perfect. He's God. And so we can't reach that standard. So even with Christ, they'll use it to lower the standard because we're, we're not Christ. Yes. Okay, though. Even if they do use Christ or it's Christ is brought up, they'll say, yes, but he was God and we can't reach that standard. But that's not the point. Right. The point of Matthew 5.48, the point of First uh, John 3.3 3 is to use him as the standard to strive for that standard. Right. Not that we reach it in this world, but we gradually move in that direction. Right? Progressively move in that direction. And, and continually, day by day, reject sin. That's the point of those passages. First yeah. John 3, 3, Therefore he who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. If you have the hope of Christ's return set before you, you will purify yourself just as Christ is pure. And we also have to reject half of the book of Ephesians, the last three chapters. We have to reject half of the book of Galatians. Um, let, let's say starting in chapter 5, 5 and 6. We have to reject them. We have to reject cha- Colossians chapters 3 and 4. And so on. There are so many passages of scripture that must be rejected if God does not expect holiness of us. Right. But holiness is a part of the gospel. 
It is the fruit of the true gospel residing in the heart. That's what holiness is. It is a manifestation, the fruit of the true gospel residing in the heart. We used to love sin. Now we struggle against sin. And we begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't it true as well that there is a place for us to... Sorry, Dan. That there isn't a contradiction between imitating Christ, but also imitating godly figures in the Bible. That they are there as examples for us. Yes. So those two things aren't in contradiction, but are in harmony. Ultimately, we're imitating Christ, but we also have examples of men and women who did imitate Christ, and we should follow their example. Yes, yes, we should not only imitate Christ, but the other examples are given so that we might imitate them. And there shouldn't be any kind of dissonance that people create between Christ as an example and Abraham as an example. They shouldn't do that. And why should they not? 1 Corinthians 11, 1. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me. Just as I also am of Christ. What else does that mean but imitate Paul as Paul imitates Christ? If Paul says that, we can't put a division between Paul and Christ or Christ and Paul. We can't do that. Don't put a wedge between the two. We have to follow Paul because he says, Just as I also am of Christ. He imitates Christ. We imitate Paul. Be imita- That's a command. Be imitators of me. Also, 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. At the beginning of the chapter, he explains some of the sins of the people. And interspersed with this, he's got some comments. Why does he list the sins and the judgments against the people of the Old Testament? Verse 6, 10-6. Now, these things happened as examples for us. Examples for us. That we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. Verse 11, he repeats the fact that they are examples. Now, in this case, he's presenting bad examples and saying, you better not behave like them and be punished like them. In Romans 4, we saw a godly example, a good example in Abraham, and that we should be like him. Then in 12, he is trying to refute our pride by saying, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You can't say you're better than Abraham. You can't say you're better than Paul. If you say that, you will fall. He says, Don't think you are better, otherwise you'll fall. Fall into sin and condemnation. And then 13, the temptations we face are common. Right. 
We can't say ours are more severe than theirs. Theirs were more severe than ours. They were lesser than us. We are better than them. They are better than us. We're lesser than them. We can't make any of these comparisons, false comparisons. We have to say that the temptations to sin are common to man, common to all of us. But trust in God who gives us the way of escape. Trust God, which they are not trusting. They're trusting in their own wisdom. They're not trusting the wisdom of God and the methods of God. They trust their own methods because they want to continue in sin. Okay, yes. Back to the, those who say we can't use Christ as the example because he was God. And so it's too high of uh, uh, you know, reach for us to be able to do that. Did he not walk this life as a human, not as divinity? So his obedience to God was done from his humanity, not from his divinity. So he had to learn and read and study the Bible and learn it. And memorize it. He had to obey what it said. And he had to do all that through the Holy Spirit that was given to him without measure. Yes, it's true that we have to see Christ in his humanity. Because in that sense, he is an example to us. Not his divinity. Um, But the way that you phrased it, I, I wouldn't say that there was no divinity at work in him. But I would say that, yes, he had a humanity that we are to emulate. Okay? So Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Remember when Jesus was 12 and his parents uh, lost him? They thought he was among the relatives in the caravan. And then they found um, that he wasn't there. And they returned to Jerusalem and found him in the temple. Well, then... When they meet up with each other, it says in 2.51, Luke 2.51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. In 51, he continued in subjection to his parents. He continued to obey his parents as a 12-year-old. Well, he was before that, and here it says he continued to obey them. Correct? So children should obey parents. This is an example of it. And 52, the point that you were making, Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He had to learn and grow in terms of his humanity. And as he did and, and kept increasing, there was more favor with God and men in what was seen, right? So yes, his humanity was a real humanity. And in that way, he struggled just as we struggle. Any more on Genesis 31? If not, we can change the subject. Yes, you have a question? Yes. You want to ask? You want to ask the question? Sure. Can you just share your thoughts on everything that's going on with the election right now? Can I share my thoughts about the the, the conflict, the conflict this week? 
Yeah, in the aftermath of the elections. Yes. Um, on, on Tuesday night, Donald John Trump won the election. He won the election Tuesday night, whatever time it was, 8, 9 p.m. He won the election at the time that they typically are decided. He won the election. The Republicans also won the Senate, um, and they have more votes. They have more votes than what is being portrayed now. If you look at the vote tally that night, it was in favor of the Republicans and Donald Trump. And since then, since later that night and since then, the Democrat Party, in cahoots with the Democrat media and everybody else that is a part of the cabal that is Washington, D.C., the Washington, D.C. cabal, mafia, they are working to undermine not only Donald Trump, but they are working to undermine you and me. The values of the nation, the Christian values of the nation, the freedom of Christians to meet and worship, to do whatever they want, instead of regulating us and telling us that we have to enter our church buildings with masks, enter our church buildings and not shake our hands, enter our church buildings and not serve communion, and not baptize anybody, not sing songs, not meet unless it's only 10 of us or whatever number they put out there. All of these are in violation of God's word and they are in violation of the Constitution of the United States. They've been working against Christians. They've been working against small businesses. And they've been working against the First and Second Amendments of the U.S. Constitution. They've been working against all of these this election year. And actually, they do this typically, but in a very severe way, that's what they've been doing this election year. So no Christian... Since we're dealing with corruption, I've heard Christians say, well, it doesn't matter. Let's just be gracious. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Uh, let's just move on with life. People have said things like this. Christians, evangelicals, right? A lot of people have been saying this. And Christian leaders have been saying things like this. Whoever thinks this way, whoever has said this publicly, shame on them. Amen. This is a matter of justice and righteousness. This is not one of those situations of turning the other cheek. It's a matter of justice and righteousness. We have to stand up for justice and righteousness. When evil is being perpetuated and perpetrated against us and people generally, I thought the Democrat Party cared for humanity. They cared for women. They cared for minorities, right? Well, why are they abusing them? Why are they not celebrating in that in the House of, of um, uh, Representatives, more Republican women were elected? Why are they not celebrating that? Why are they not celebrating that many blacks went out to vote and they voted Republican? Why are they not celebrating that many Hispanics voted Republican, much more than in the past? And women, and suburban women, and all, all, whatever other categories that they invent. They've all been doing that. But they don't celebrate it because the Democrat Party and any of their outlets, any of their channels, the, the Washington, D.C. elitist class, the mafia, they are all um, selfish, wicked people who are there for the money and the status. And many Republicans are that way. 
Republican officials. And the Democrat Party is the outspoken, overt channel of corruption, both here and abroad. The Democrat Party is that channel of corruption. And anyone with the correct information, anyone with objectivity, can look at it and see it. It's plain as day. It is the so-called elephant in the room. Let's call it the monster in the room. Okay, it's the monster or the Goliath in the room. That's what the Democrat Party is. And we cannot tolerate it. If we tolerate it, do you want to speak Arabic and worship before the God, uh, the the idol God, Allah? Do you you want to be a Muslim and have your children and grandchildren bow five, pray five times a day by force? Do you want to have your daughters have female genital mutilation? That happens often with Muslims. Do you want there to be um, Arabic racism against white people and black people? Because that's what the Arabic Muslims do. Muhammad himself was a blatant racist. And he will perpetuate that, or the Muslims will, here in the United States. You want more racial division? Who wants to live in Saudi Arabia? Raise your hand. Nobody. Who wants to live in Iran? Raise your hand. So why are we tolerating that happening right here in the United States? We have to say away with this, right? Or let's say communism. Who wants communism under all of the other names that it is given? Who wants communism in the United States? Do we want to eat rats or rat meat like they do in Cuba? Do we want to be rummaging through the garbage dump like they do in Venezuela? Do we want to do that? Do we want to be in slave labor camps and death camps in China, communist China? Who wants to do that? Do you want that to happen to your daughters, to be sold away as slaves and prostitutes? Do you want that to happen? No. And aside from the physical afflictions like I just described, they will go to hell. What happened to North Africa? What happened to the Middle East? What happened to many other parts of the world that eventually did convert to Christ, at least nominally so, and had access to the Bible? What happened? In the Roman Empire, they became Christian. And then what happened? The Muslims conquered those regions. And since the 1800s and 1900s, the communists have conquered many of these regions and they don't have access to the Bible to read it. And if you don't read the Bible and know about Christ, you go to hell. Don't we care about souls? If we care about souls, it's not a matter of, let's just be gracious. This is not the time for grace. If we see see somebody in a car accident and you have the power to help, that's the time for grace and love. But when you see a criminal about to murder you, what should you do? Defend yourself, kill him before he's able to murder you. That's justice. We're in a point, in a time, in an occasion for justice, not grace. So none of this sappy, syrupy Christianity that is misapplied. It's misapplied. And besides, the people who say that, they don't believe in what they're saying. Of course not. Because they are the most vicious, intolerant, um, heinous, egregious kind of people with their words and actions than anybody on the face of the earth. They would easily, if they, could have, if they had the power, they would easily put us to death. They would easily shut down our churches. Yep. 
That's what they do worldwide. That's what they do here. That's what they've been trying to do since the spring of this year. Shut down churches. So it's not about... In New York, they've been doing it. They've been doing it, yeah. They've been doing it in many cities, many Democrat cities and states. They've been doing it. So we must say no. It is wrong and it's false. And then the sovereignty of God. Don't you believe in the sovereignty of God? They say, of course we do. But what did we read just now in Genesis 31? We read of God's sovereignty, right? Verse Verse uh, 7, God did not allow him to hurt me. Verse 9, God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. Verse 12, for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. Verse 16, do whatever God has said to you. Right? That's true. But did that mean that Jacob just sat there in Padanaram? Of course not. No, he acted. He acted. So believing in the sovereignty of God is really, in the rhetoric of today, an excuse to tell us to keep quiet and let us have our way. Let the tyrants have their way while we keep silent and let them run over us. That's what sovereignty of God is meaning right now in the rhetoric of the elections. We should seek the welfare of our city, right? Yes, yes, yes. Okay, well, let me come to that point. So... Sovereignty of God is not exclusive of human action, human responsibility. It is never that way in Scripture. Never, ever that way in Scripture in reference to things that God expects of us to do. Now, occasionally God will say, stand aside, I'm going to perform a miracle. But still, you have to stand aside. You Still, you have to keep quiet. Still, you have to keep your weapons down, right? When, for example, when they were at the Red Sea, right? They had to stay calm. They had to just wait for Moses to do what he was told to do and for God to split the sea. But they're still acting in a sense. And they had to walk. Then they, then they had to walk through after God split the sea. Right. So there is always some action. There is always some action. So don't be deceived by biblical rhetoric or biblical sounding rhetoric Always figure out what is the speaker saying? Where is he going? What are his intentions? What evidence does he have? Because people use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning and they use common words with an uncommon meaning. Let me correct myself. I said people. Heretics, apostates, antichrists, they use biblical words with an unbiblical meaning. They use common words with an uncommon meaning. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he is voracious. He is rapacious. Satan is. He's always trying to tear us apart. Right. Alive. Tear us apart while we are alive. He's always trying to do that. So we have to be on guard whenever people speak. We have to always be on guard. Because the devil could be speaking through that individual. And it's because of God's sovereignty that we can have courage to act. Okay. That, that, it's not our courage. It's not, that shouldn't lead us to not act. It's, that should lead us to act because Jesus is the one who has all authority in heaven on earth. Right? Yes. It is God's sovereignty that gives us the courage to act. 
This is what we just saw here. When, when you say God's sovereignty, we could also say um, trusting the promise of God because he is sovereign. Trusting the promise of God because he is sovereign. This is what God did with Jacob in Genesis 31.3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and, re- and to your relatives and I will be with you. Right? So he had to trust the sovereignty of God in these words of promise and then he showed that trust by acting on it. Yes. He had confidence. He's arousing courage in Jacob. This is my oracle to you. I will fulfill it. Now it's your duty to believe it and act upon it. Yes. Okay, now another comment was made about praying for the welfare of the city. Is it good for cities to have rioting and looting? Is it good for people to be murdering each other? Is it good for there to be no police force in the cities? Is it good? Is it good for there to be um, widespread hunger, uh, starvation? Is it good to have litter strewn everywhere? Is it good to have human feces everywhere on the streets and the sidewalks? Is it good to have diseases, unique diseases that the United States has not experienced in many decades? Is it good to have these in the cities? Is it good to have cities that are so dangerous your family cannot walk there? You cannot walk there. Police can't walk there. Police can't walk there. Otherwise, they will have bottles of frozen water, ice water uh, thrown at them or have a criminal walk up with a, a, a gun and shoot the officers while they are seated in their vehicle through the window. Is it good for these things to happen? These are real incidents. New York State and California, these incidents did occur against police officers. These are just a couple of them. There's many things like this that happen. Is it good to undermine the authority? And police officers are not racists. George Floyd was not an innocent little boy walking down the sidewalk when white, a white police officer who had nothing better to do than to look for an innocent, playful boy, black boy, walking down the sidewalk and suddenly decided to shoot him down or to put his knee on his neck. No, George Floyd and most of these popularized men and sometimes women are criminals, felons. They deserve to be put to death. Not necessarily in that way, but if it's in defense of the police officer's life, then that's what happens. They are criminals. They should not be celebrated. Not at all. Starting with Martin Luther King Jr. He himself deserved the death penalty according to the word of God because he was a serial adulterer. Serial adulterer. Even the night before he was assassinated. And there's other things about him. His theology was completely corrupt. He did not believe in the miracles. He did not believe in the substitutionary death of Christ. He didn't believe in anything that the Bible teaches that is fundamental, sound Christian doctrine. He believed in none of that. He was not a Christian, the reverend, doctor. No. Maybe he was a doctor, but not a reverend. He was not reverend at all. And we should not idolize them or celebrate them at all. Back to the city. I said, 
what the city should not be. Nobody wants that, right? Nobody wants that. But in Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah 29, verse 4, 29.4, and we'll close with this reading and brief commentary. Jeremiah 29.4 to 7. Actually, let's read 4 to 9. Jeremiah 29.4 to 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them and plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become the fathers of sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, and multiply there and do not decrease. And seek the peace of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its peace you will have peace. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. People were listening to false prophets deceiving them. God did not send them, giving them wrong advice. But this advice here is for them to settle there in the city and to seek the peace or the welfare of the city and to pray to the Lord on its behalf. Because whatever happens there happens to you, he says. In its peace, you will have peace. But if there's no peace, if there is mayhem in the city, you will experience the mayhem. No doubt. So this is our attitude, the right attitude, even if we are in a a pagan, unbelieving culture, we need to pray like this because the exiles were in pagan Babylon and they were told to pray like this. We should too. 1 Timothy 2, 1-7. Pray for uh, kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. To live the Christian life and to preach the Christian gospel. We should be praying for this. But we can't live in peace if people are always tormenting us, if it's always dangerous, and if they are constantly attacking the Christian faith. We can't live in peace, but we're supposed to pray for peace. Even if they are unbelievers, that they cooperate with the Christian values and worldview. 1 Timothy 2 was Timothy in Ephesus, a pagan city. Under, in, in, within the Roman Empire, the, the emperor was pagan, idolatrous, and yet he was told to pray for the king to leave them alone to live the Christian life and preach the Christian gospel. And the same here in Jeremiah 29. Leave us alone. Let us pray to the Lord because when the Lord blesses the city, we will be blessed. When we are blessed, the city will be blessed. It's reciprocal. That should be our attitude. So that's my stance on it. And then briefly speaking about the future, I don't know what's going to happen, but I believe, I trust that things are going to work out for the better. I don't know when, but that's what I think. Okay.
One last comment. About 20 minutes ago, they declared Biden the winner. Uh, not officially, but these media sources and Mainstream. Mainstream. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even if they declare him president, it doesn't make him president. All they are are false news outlets. So they're just making a declaration, but it's not necessarily true. Right? Um, it wasn't true that Donald Trump and Stormy Daniels had something going on. Even later, she denied that it ever happened after she lost the lawsuit and had to pay Trump's lawyer's fees. And she is in a legal battle with her own lawyer. She, he was corrupting her and she was corrupting him. And during this lawsuit, she committed adultery and her husband, Stormy Daniels' husband, divorced her. So we're talking about wicked, wicked people. So that ended up not being true, okay? The Russian hoax was not true. Impeachment on Ukraine was not true. You can go on and on. Everything they say is full of lies. Do not listen. Please, do not listen. Do not be persuaded when you are listening to the common news sources. You have to be practicing discernment. Go to the correct websites that will be honest people, not dishonest people, intending to persuade and manipulate public opinion. Don't listen to them. Firstly, they're going to demoralize you every time you listen to them. But secondly, they are lying to you. Now, if you listen to a liar without rejecting the lies, if you listen to liars, what does that make you? A liar. Because you're believing the lie and then you're going to start speaking and acting based on those lies. So you end up repeating the lies that they perpetuate. So don't be a liar because liars go to the lake of fire, right? Right. Revelation 21, verse 8 says, All liars go to the lake of fire. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Amen.